All right, this is Family Sunday, so our children will be remaining with us this morning as we continue in the book of Amos in chapter 9, looking, well, your, your bulletin says chapter 9, verses 13 through 15, but I think this morning we'll probably just camp out in chapter 9, verse 13, behold, the plowman shall overtake the reaper. Amos, the prophet from Tekoa, just outside of Jerusalem, said the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. And this occurs when a very particular God shows no partiality. For there is an anger that comes out of love stronger than any that comes out of hate. And so the Lord turns his eye particularly towards his people. In Amos chapter 9 and verse 9, he says, For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. And all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. Those who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. The reality is, is that the booth, the, the pole barn, the thicket of David, that of which men would make so much of in their own pomp and circumstance, has fallen as it was destined to do. And yet, in spite of the fallenness of the booth of David, there is a promise that comes to David from Nothing less than God Himself, from a God who calls into existence those things which do not exist. And His promise to David is this, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. And moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. The Lord is speaking through his prophet to King David, whose booth, whose thicket will collapse and fall. And he says, you think you're going to make me a house? You can't even make your own booth stand. Instead, I will make you a house. The Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so, in the midst of strife and tribulation in the midst of judgment that is well deserved because of the sin of the people in the midst of all of these things 
The promise of the Lord to David stands firm. David's booth has fallen. By the time Amos is prophesying these words, the fix is in. The Lord has set his eye upon them for evil and not for good. It's going to happen. You can beg, you can plead. Judgment is coming. And yet, in the midst of the ruins, the Lord will build him a house. When the when the, the flood of justice comes through, when the fire burns and there is nothing left but cinders and ash, in the midst of this remains a precious stone in which the meaning of all things is bound. It looks like this. In verse 11, in that day, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen. You understand that the mythologies of old, the mythologies of old, the things that the Greeks held to, the idea of the pantheon and the gods and the idea of the phoenix rising from the ashes, you understand that all of these things are twisted, distorted, humanistic understandings of actual spiritual realities. These people were there at the beginning when these things were unfolding. They misunderstood what they saw, and in the depravity of their flesh and the influence of demons, they twisted it into something else, but at its heart lies the kernel of reality that is at the heart of the universe, and it is the cross of Jesus Christ. And so here's the Lord saying, man, I'm going to burn it down and you know what will be left when I burn it down? The only thing that matters, the promise I made to David. In that day, in that day when the last eight chapters of Amos have been fulfilled, when there is nothing left, when they've been drawn out straight through the breaches in the wall by hooks in their jaw like they were fish, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. I will repair its breaches. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. The Lord who calls into existence, as Paul said, that which does not exist. The reality for Amos's audience was that they were facing impending doom. This is a prophetic promise, and now, 23 plus hundred years later, a historic reality. They were facing impending doom. 
And yet, in the midst of that doom was the promise of future grace. In verse 13, the Lord continues and says, Behold, the days are coming. And they're not here yet, but they are coming. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes... Him who sows the seed, and the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. The plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. Here is a picture, if you will, and you know. I grew up just over the hill, right over here, and we, we if, you can, if you can say anything, and we only dabbled, we certainly didn't do it for a living, but if you can say anything about the way that we dealt with the land, we truck farmed. Man, we had a tomato patch, and we had some corn, we had potatoes and peas, grew lettuce in the early spring, we had cattle we had chickens every now and then we even had hogs we did a little bit of all of it keep yourself busy besides what comes out of the deep freeze in the basement tastes way better than what comes out of the grocery store did a little bit of everything but we weren't serious farmers when you go talk to john now these guys i mean damon were talking this morning they're they're figuring how they're going to insure their stuff on their second, first and second planting by the acre. Things get a little bit more serious. In my house, if the crops failed, that was a bummer, but it wasn't the end of the world. But for people who are living or dying, according to it, it's a whole different standard. And there is being something described here that is foreign to those who till the ground. And that is this, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, that the guy that is preparing the soil to be planted for the future crop will actually catch up, and if I can use the parlance, will lap the guy that is cutting the crop. And so too with the grapes, that the treader of grapes, the guy that's, out there smashing down the grapes to produce the juice for the wine will he will be overtaken by him who sows the seed. Now what do you do with that? Because that's not a reality as far as we understand it. There is a season for planting. There is a season of growth, there is a season of maturation, and there is a season of harvest, and then there is a season where the land lies dormant, where you don't do anything. And yet, here is the word of the Lord to the people of Israel in the midst of impending judgment when it is at their very door, even those that don't recognize it, and he says, look, there will come a day after all of this is over where the plowman will literally lap the guy that is harvesting the grain. 
I would have you for a moment, if we may digress, to consider God's discipline. The nature of discipline historically, at least within my lifetime and the handful of generations that I have some kind of ancestral knowledge of that preceded you and I in this country, the nature of discipline historically has been carrot and stick. Blessing and retribution. This is a biblical concept, and it should be employed. If you do well, you'll be rewarded, and if you do poorly, you will be punished. There is blessing and, and, and increase in, in, in doing well and pursuing righteousness, and there is punishment and decrease in pursuing the things of iniquity. This is the way historically that has always been. Unfortunately, that is often not the case today. Today, it seems to be carrot only and no stick. We've been watching this since right at the end of my generation and moving forward into the ones that came after, and it is not producing good results. To the point that today, not, not, in, not in Chicago or in Little Rock or even in Fort Smith, but in good old Greenwood High School, there is stuff that is being said by students out loud in classes that if I said from this pulpit, there would be meetings all week over. And when the teachers call the administration down to do something about it, you know what they get? A talk. Can't even manage to get them in school suspension. For stuff that if I would have said, Dick Cohen would have hit me in the mouth with a paddle. We're down to all carrot and no stick. They're scared to death they're going to get sued. You know why they're scared they're going to get sued? Because for too many years, too many laid down and didn't do anything about it until the standard had been set. It's not a biblical concept. You say, man, you're being hard on Greenwood administrators. No, I'm not. Such is the nature of the world in which we live. This is how it's going. We have removed the biblical concept of discipline and replaced it with nothing but reward. Not reward for righteousness and discipline for iniquity, but just reward, period. The reality is, is even what we saw historically, carrot and stick, reward and discipline is not truly the full measure of what God's discipline in Scripture looks like. Because God's discipline in Scripture is not two-part, but it instead is three. And so, if you will look with me to the book of Exodus in chapter 26. In Exodus chapter 26, before the nation of Israel is properly formed, but we're at the point of that formation. 
The Lord speaks to the people about what his discipline among them is going to look like. A discipline that is playing itself out across the pages of the book of Amos. And it is not simply carrot and stick. It is carrot, stick, and sword. In Exodus chapter 26, verse 1 through 13, the carrot. The blessing of the Lord for those that seek after His righteousness. Moreover, oh boy. <laughs> that is a bad reference. better save me, Mark. This is going to be a humbling experience. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 26. crazy thing is, is I double checked my references, and when I did it this morning, I still had it open to Deuteronomy. Okay. The scriptural reality of discipline, which I feel like I've just had part in, (laughs) is much bigger. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny when you're in the pew, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) the spiritual reality of discipline is much bigger it's not just carrot and stick Deuteronomy 28. Good grief. Thank you for solid elders. Thank you, Jim. And hey, it'll be on the web. Humility's good. Deuteronomy chapter 28. There is blessing in seeking after righteousness. 
If you're faithful and obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Now that's some verbiage right there. All of these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Does anybody want to be run roughshod by blessing? Amen. Amen. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall you be shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be you when you come in, and blessed shall be you when you go out. And the Lord will cause. You see what? What is occurring here, both in the blessing, the curse, and the sword, is not simply the result of natural choice. It is specifically created by the will of a God who causes things to be. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. This is not karma. This is not some kind of natural law that says if you do good, good things will come to you, and if you do bad, bad things will come to you. This is a very personal, very intentional, and very active God that is causing these things to happen. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you as one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you and on your barns and in all that you undertake, and he will bless you in the land and the Lord your God that the Lord your God is giving you. And the Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your wound and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its seasons and to bless all the work of your hands. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you shall go up and not down if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods and serve them. There's the carrot. This is God's standard of discipline. If you do well, you will be blessed. We should uphold that. Man, we should uphold that. Years ago, years ago, I had a dad in my office, and he's, and he's talking about discipline in his boy, and he's like, I just can't get it through to him. He's like, man, he's like, I whip him, I, I, I preach at him, I do this, I do that, I do the other, and I'm watching this guy, 
And, and guys, you know me, so for me to woe it up kind of for a minute and go, I said, buddy, is he rewarded when he does well? Or is he just chastised when he screws up? Because if all you do is chastise him when he screws up, you're never going to get there. That's not the model that God gives, man. God says, if you do well, I will bless you. I will bless you. This is the way we need to approach our children. This is the way we need to approach our business life. Man, if you do well, you will be blessed. By the same token, the other side... The Lord says, if you fail to do well, you will be chastised. Now look, while we can point out the particular example of the individual who chastises and does not bless and does not reward, the reality is, is that in society today, what we do is reward and not chastise. To a gross degree. And so here's the stick. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all of these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The very curses that are at the time of Amos' prophesying getting ready to come upon and overtake the people of Israel. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. And the Lord will send on you curses, confusion and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. And the Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of. And the Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation, and fiery heat, with drought and with blight and with mildew, and they shall pursue you until you perish. The heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron and the Lord will make the rain of your land powder from heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. And so the Lord says there are blessings for the pursuit of righteousness and the pursuit of him and there are curses for denying him in the pursuit of iniquity and These things are not simply natural cause and effect, but they are coming specifically because He is causing them to come. But there is yet, there is yet another layer. There is the carrot and there is the stick. Do well and be rewarded. Do poorly and be chastised. And then finally, if you 
continue in the pursuit of that iniquity to no end as though the chastisement is not having any effect, then comes the sword. Verse 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. This is the Lord's doing. He will make it this way. It's not bad management. It's not that your spears haven't been properly maintained. It's not bad tactics. It's not a bad economy. It's not that you've printed too much currency or put your faith in pharmakia. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. You shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. And the Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt, with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind and you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness and you shall not prosper in your ways and you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually and there shall be no one to help you. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, and you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, but you shall not be rest- but it shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long, but you shall be helpless. A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and of all your labors, and you shall only be oppressed and crushed continually, so that you are driven mad by the sights your eyes see. The Lord will strike you on the knees and on the legs with grievous boils of which you cannot be healed from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. We look around today at the participation trophy generation and we say, oh, we've removed the stick. And it's nothing but carrot. The reality is, is that the discipline that comes from the Lord is not bifold, but trifold. It is reward. It is measured discipline. And if the reward and the measured discipline are not sufficient, it is the annihilation of the sword. And if he would do it to Israel, he will do it to us. If you truly agape, 
Now, we're, we're, where, we're, where we're reading in Amos, the die is cast. It is done. Where we're at right now, I don't know if it's done or not. I pray that it's not. I pray that in our generation and in our day that the, that, that, that the mold has not set. But guys, let's be honest, it's close. And if it has set, then it's set. And when it all burns down and there's nothing but cinders and ashes left and the Lord has shaken like a sieve and, and none has escaped, there will still be the jewel of that promise in the midst of it. There will be the survivors, the remnant. But if it's not, and I pray that it's not, then the only way to turn that tide is a scriptural, scriptural approach to societal discipline. And because we've abused the carrot for as long as we have, it's going to have to go in the icebox for a while. What would have been required in Israel is what must be required in us, and that is mass repentance. Because we are moving away from the stick and moving towards the sword. If you truly agape, if you truly love, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here, I know I am. But you need to go and preach the same things to the people that you know that aren't the choir. If you truly love your children, if you truly love your employees, if you truly love your friends, if you truly love all of the people in your family that you have interaction with, it is this threefold method that must be employed. If, if it had been employed amongst the people of Israel, they would still be here to this day. God disciplines his people. He rewards and blesses those that seek after him for his righteousness. He, he chastises those who depart from that and seek after iniquity. And if you continue in that, in the stubbornness of your own fleshly heart, then he will bring the judgment of the sword. And if they had simply done the things that they had been told to do, if they had been about the business of doing God's things, then they would have seen the increase of that success. As a matter of fact, in the book of Exodus, the Lord talks about how things would be if they followed His law. And here's what He said. And He, he said it speaking about 
both the grain harvest and the grape harvest. And I'm going to paraphrase because we're running out of time this morning. So I'm just going to paraphrase for you. And this is what he tells him. He says, if you come into the land and you seek after me and you forsake other gods, but seek only me and worship only me, then I'm going to bring you into a land that has been historically very arid. But because of my blessing, I'm going to make this land under your control a place where the grain planting will begin as the grapes are being harvested. And the grain will grow all through its season and you will be busy harvesting the grain when it is time to begin tending the vines in the spring. And so the idea here is that you will be constantly in a state of some kind of increase in blessing. You'll either be planting and tending your grain or you'll be planting and tending your grapes. And these things are going to move from one to the other, to the one, to the other, to the one, to the other, over and over and over, across your calendar continually so that you are never at want. Your hands will never be idle. You'll always be in a place where the Lord is is producing abundance in your midst. And the production of this physical abundance is a testimony Not the result of, but a testimony of the spiritual abundance of which you are participating in. Now the Lord promises that to them. It's a very real, very tactile, very pragmatic sort of promise. You're always going to be busy, man. You're going to be doing something. You're either going to be planting or you're going to be harvesting. You're either, you're either going to be tending vines or you're going to be smashing grapes. You're going to be putting up wine. You're always going to be about the business of increase. But I would point you back to Amos chapter 9 and tell you that what is described here is not that. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. Here, he is not talking about an abundant economic cycle by which you are always working on the increase of your vineyards and your fields, but instead something totally different. He's not saying that, hey, listen, you you know, your wheat harvest is going to be so long and so abundant. The the milo and the wheat and and, and the barley is going to be so abundant that it's going to take you all the way until it's time to start dealing with grapes before you get done with that. And the grapes are going to be so abundant that it's going to take you all the way until the time it's, it's time to start plowing and planting the seed for you to deal with them. That's not what he's saying. He says, within each one of these things, that you're going to have a guy over here picking and literally right behind him is the plowman that's planting the next crop. As fast as you can get it off the vine, as fast as you can thresh it, I don't know how long it takes when you do it by hand to cut it and shock it. I'm sure it's a deal, but as 
fast as you can do it. They're coming right behind you to plant the next generation. That is something that exists nowhere on earth. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. This is not the promise of earthly abundance. This is something completely different. This is something that will only come at the day of the Lord. Turn back just a couple of pages to the book of Joel. In Joel chapter 3, in verse 13, the Lord declares, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in and tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. If you read Revelation chapter 12 and 13, you will see these events unfolding in real time. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withhold their shining. The Lord roars from Zion. And Joel and Amos are speaking the same message. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge for his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and the fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. This is the fullness that we see of Revelation chapter 22 in verses 1 through 5, where John says that the angel showed me a river of water of life, Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him and they will see His face and... His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. A day when the water of life flows through the center of the city, flowing forth from the throne of God Himself, lined with the tree of life who is yielding its fruit monthly over and over and over and over when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, when the treader of grapes shall be overtaken by him who sows the seed. 
It's a marvelous thing. What the Lord is speaking about the restoring and the raising up of the booth of David that has fallen is not restoring it to what it formerly was, but is bringing it into something completely other than and definitively holy. You want to know what it looks like? Like actually looks like? I mean, you've had the description. Okay, so here's the description. There, There will come a day, behold, says the Lord, when the booth of David that has fallen, when all of this has been burned down, when the carrot and the stick wasn't enough, so I brought the sword and I cut them off. Why? Because he loves himself and he loves them. That's why. So the carrot wasn't enough and the stick wasn't enough. And so I brought the sword and the overwhelming scourge. And there was nothing but ashes and cinder. And yet in the midst of it is this one thing that is so precious. As Paul said, unlike the wood, hay, and stubble, it just won't burn. No matter what you do, it won't burn. Now listen to me, no matter what situation you find yourself in. No matter the politics of the day, no matter what's going on with your family today, no matter what's going on with your health today, it doesn't matter. Here's this one thing that won't burn. I will make him a house. He wants to make one for me? That's good. He should, but he's not going to get to. I'm going to make him one. And when I make it, it's not going to be as good as it can be. Because as good as it can be is if by the time you finally got all the wheat in the barn, it was time to start planting grapes. And by the time you got all of the grapes stomped and the wine in the skins, it was time to start planting wheat. That's as good as it can be. He says, when I'm done with it, it'll be better than that. Forget about stacking season end to end. The plowman will lap the one who harvests. Him who is planting the vineyard will overcome the one who is treading the grapes. This is something different. The water flows down the center of the street of the city and the tree of life blooms every single month. It never stops. You want to know what it looks like? Here's what it looks like. It looks like Ezekiel chapter 47. Okay. Ezekiel saw some stuff. With the stuff that Ezekiel saw today, they would probably put him on the nervous pills. If you go back to chapter 40, at the beginning of chapter 40, In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year of the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me to the city in visions of God. He brought me into the land of Israel. He set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. And when he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. 
And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I shall show you. I love that statement. Set your heart upon all, not that I'll tell you, but that I will show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you, declare all that you see to the house of Israel. And so for the next seven chapters there, man, he just gets his face blown off by this angelic messenger that is showing him the things that Israel must understand about her future salvation. Because by the time Ezekiel is writing, the sword has already come. When Amos is writing, it hasn't. When Amos is writing, it's still been carrot and stick, carrot and stick, carrot and stick, mainly stick, 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 but there is still some carrot. The sword is coming, and by the time Ezekiel writes, the sword has come. They're in the midst of this. And he sees a vision of the promise of the building of the house of David. And he sees a temple that is grander than any that has ever existed. And he sees the temple that will exist during the millennium and what it will look like when it's not one harvest backed up against the next planting, but when the planters are lapping the harvesters. He sees what it'll be like when the fullness of the glory of God is being vindicated in the midst of his creation and because of that reality, the creation is acting according to the fullness of what it was designed to be. And some crazy stuff happens. Some crazy stuff happens. Chapter 47, verse 1. And then he brought me back to the door of the temple. And behold, water... You notice... We're talking about the same events of Revelation 22 here. Water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. So here you have the temple, and which is the throne of God himself, and coming from the throne, according to Revelation 22, and now proceeding out the threshold of the eastern door of the temple the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple south of the altar snakes out the eastern door turns by the altar and goes south and he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around to the outside of the outer gate that faces towards the east and behold the water was trickling out of the south side this is the water of life itself This is not imagery. This is not euphemism. Man, this is the water of life. Watch what it does. 
Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits. And then he led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Now, this is water like no other water, folks. When I was a kid, they put city water. We called it city water. It's not city water. It's rural water, but we called it city water because it didn't come out of a well. They put city water up and down Sturgeon Road. Boy, it's a big deal. Seemed like it took forever. They dug some really deep ditches right, right down the side of the road, right there through Mama and Papa's front yard. There were piles of dirt this big and a big ditch on the other side. And for a little boy, that was just as good as life got, man. You know? And he had a big old pile of dirt to play in. And we'd get out there and probably drove some of the construction crews nuts. We'd get out there with a bucket and a hose and... And, uh, man, you could dump that stuff out, and it'd make rivers and canyons and all sorts of stuff for you to push your tractors and your bulldozers in. I, it was the best thing in the world. But one of the things you learn real quick, when you dump water out on the ground and you want it to flow and you want it to make you a little river and make you a little ditch and you dig all your stuff out and you're going to have a pond over here, you know, you pour that stuff out, what it does is it dissipates. Every time. You dump it out up top and there's a lot at first and the further it goes, the less there is. Until you've just got a damp patch at the bottom, but that's not what this water does because this isn't water the way we understand water to be. This water grows. Verse 5, again, he measured a thousand. Well, let's go back to 4. Verse 3, it was ankle deep. And again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. There's no tributaries that are feeding this river. It is only flowing forth from the throne, and when it comes out, it is a trickle. It was ankle deep. It was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was waist deep. And again, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? What's even more amazing is not simply the way that the water behaves, but what it does when it comes in contact with everything else. Then he led me back to the bank of the river, and as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river there were very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah. It enters the sea, and when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish, for this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. And fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engadi to Engalim, and will be will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are left for salt. 
And on the banks on both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because of the water from them flows for them flows from the sanctuary. And the fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Okay. If you're supposed to be, if, if it wasn't Family Sunday and you were going to be in children's church, raise your hand. Come on, show me. Okay. All right, listen. Talking to you. The place that the prophet is describing is a place called Engadi. It's the place that King David hid when King Solomon was trying to kill him. It is one of the most inhospitable places on the planet. Today, we call that area the Dead Sea. And it's called the Dead Sea because it's the lowest point on the planet, and all the water flows into it, but none ever flows out. There's nothing lower. There's nowhere else for it to go. So water flows in from the Jordan River. It never flows out. It's very hot there. It's not unusual for it to be 115, 116 degrees. And so there's a lot of evaporation and all of the water evaporates off and all it leaves left is the salt. And when you go to Engadi, it is nothing but rocks that are crusted with salt as far as you can see. And let me tell you something, guys. You know what it smells like? I'm just going to be real honest with you. It smells like a toot. That's what it smells like. You know why? Because it's so low in the earth's crust that the ground is breaking open and sulfur is flowing up out of the cracks. There's pits of tar that's like black bubbling asphalt and it's I mean the place is disgusting literally nothing lives there nothing it's salt and rock and sulfur and tar the water's really neat to float in you don't have to know how to swim if you can balance yourself you'll float out right about your belly button like a buoy bobbing in the water. The problem is, if you drink it, you're dead. One good swallow will overwhelm your kidneys and you will die of renal failure. It is one of the most poisonous places on earth. And the Lord looks at His people And he said, I offered you blessing, and that wasn't enough. And I offered you discipline, and that wasn't sufficient. You would not yield. And so I'm bringing the sword upon you. I will shake you like a sieve, and none will fall to the ground. And the sinners among my people will die. And you're going to look around, those of you who are left, those of you who are the remnant, are going to look around and, and say, where, where is our God in all of this? 
And he's going to say, I'm the one thing that didn't burn. I'm the one thing that's left. And the promise that I made to your forefathers and to you. And you think this is bad? In that day, when I set glorified upon my throne and the water flows forth from the temple, just a trickle that becomes a stream, that becomes a ford, that goes from ankle deep to knee deep to waist deep to a roaring torrent that not only supplies for what is needed, but will take the most toxic place on the planet, that will take a place that is nothing but, but stone and salt and bitumen and smells like a toot, and make it explode with life. So that the trees are abundant, so abundant that they bring forth fruit every single month that water that won't support bacteria will teem with fish so that the men cast their nets from Engadi to Engelin, bringing in the bounty that is nothing more than just the physical testimony of the reality of the goodness of a God who is in their midst. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. The hope that the people of God have is a hope in something that is fundamentally different. Uh, people seek the Lord for all sorts of reasons. They come to church for all sorts of reasons. Oftentimes people find themselves walking into the door of a church that they've never walked in before because they're having some kind of trouble. Trouble with their marriage, trouble with their children, trouble with their health. And that's good. That's good that they would come for those things. Man, the gospel speaks to every single aspect of life among men. That's good. But do not be fooled into thinking that this is the purpose of the gospel. Man, will the gospel fix your marriage? Man, if you, if you cling to it, it has the ability to, yes. Man, is the gospel what your kids need? Yes, yes. <laughs> But don't be fooled into thinking that's what its purpose is. Well, the gospel is being manifest in the midst of this life. The point of the gospel is not this life. It's not. It's something completely different. The point of the gospel is not to get you to the place where you have wheat harvest all the way up to grape planting and grape crushing, grape crushing all the way up to the point of wheat planting.
planning. The point of the gospel is something more. The point of the gospel is something that if the people in, that were hearing the words of Amos were to have any hope that they must cling to, it is what Paul spoke specifically about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, or chapter 15, in verses 12 through 19, where he said this, If Christ is proclaimed as risen from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Man, if you are approaching the gospel of Jesus Christ for the manner in which, for solely for the manner in which it can be applied in this life, then you are after, according to Paul, a fool's errand. You need to go do something else. If, if, if what you're doing with, with the gospel is your best life now, if it is, if it is how to, to make things now as, as good and wholesome and righteous and, and, and you know, like, you know, granola, homeschooly, uh, apple pie kind of good, if that, now, now look, the gospel informs everything. Don't hear me wrong. Don't put words in my mouth. But if that's what you're looking for, you need to go do something different. You do. You go, man, it's not very seeker-friendly. I know. I have no intention of being seeker-friendly. I want to be God-glorifying. Man, if that's the case, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. That means you're an idiot. If there is not something supernatural that is going on with the gospel in your heart and in your mind, then according to Paul, you are engaging in futility, which is the definition of idiocracy. So don't be offended because Pastor Brian's correct. If you're approaching the gospel simply for what it can improve in this life today, you are an idiot. I don't believe anyone here is approaching it that way. I don't. If I did... We'd be having a lunch this week, <laughs> right? I don't believe anyone's approaching it that way. But friends, I'm telling you, if you are approaching it that way, you are an idiot. Why? Because that's what Scripture says. There has to be something bigger here. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
And then this statement, and I think it defines the whole thing. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We're of all people most to be pitied. Now, man, that says a lot, and we're going to dive into it in the next couple of weeks. That says a lot about the nature. It it really does. It gives an incredible commentary on the church in America today because if we look at the lives of most churchgoers, myself included, and, and you included today in America, and we look at the sacrifices they're making, I'm not sure that we're the most to be pitied. But we should be. We should be. Because we're not looking. We're not looking to preserve this. We're looking for the thing that's left when all of this burns. And friends, it's going to burn. It may not burn in my lifetime. It may not burn in yours. It may. But it may not. I pray that it doesn't. Not so much for me, but for all the kids that raised their hand a minute ago and said, I'm supposed to, I would be in children's church today if it wasn't Family Sunday. I don't want it to burn. I want them to be able to make it. But it might. The thing that we're about is what's left after the fire comes. And people look at Amos and they go, that's a rough book. It is a rough book. It's a glorious book. Because the Lord's going to sieve out that which remains. And I pray, I pray, that he would see fit to use us, little old Mount Zion Baptist Church, that he would use us in some way in that sieving. And so to that end, I say this today. If you come and you want Christ because of what he can give you in this life, let me tell you something, you're a fool. Hey man, he gives great stuff in this life, but that's not what he's about. If you think that, you're to be most pitied. Man, come to Christ for who he is in his fullness. Man, come to Christ because he's what's left when everything else burns. Come to Christ because you were brought forth from dust and to dust you shall return. And you need something that's not dust. Man, if those people had had something that wasn't dust, Amos' message to them would be different than what it was. Call out to God for faith. You can't produce it of yourself, but here's the good news. The good news is that He is faithful to produce it in all who ask. You can't do it. You ain't got it. That's okay. He does. You may think you have it all together. One of these days, it's just going to go, whoa. 
all the stuff you worked so hard for, you wore yourself out for, all the stuff that you were chasing after when you didn't have time to spend with your kids and it made you snippy with your wife, all that kind of stuff, it's just going to turn to ash. Say, oh, pastor, man, Scripture teaches a biblical work ethic. Amen to that. Amen to that. It sure does. biblical worth ethic that is in pursuit of a biblical ethic that is in pursuit of the testimony one of these days it's all going up in smoke sooner or later when your booth falls The question is, is do you have the promise that God will raise it back up a house? Israel did. We do. Tell your friends about it that don't. Let's pray.